Every young associate has probably had a boss who was a real pain in the ass. But the film we are discussing this week on the Pro Se Movie Club dares to ask the question, what if that boss was literally Satan and also your dad? Yes, we are talking about The Devil's Advocate. It is the story of Kevin Lomax, played by Keanu Reeves, a hotshot Florida litigator who has never lost a case. His record draws the eye of a Tony New York law firm and its enigmatic top partner John Milton, played by Al Pacino, in a performance that resides on a plane outside of what we know as reality. Uh, the job presents Kevin with a moral crisis and rips his family apart as he becomes an unwitting pawn in a battle for humanity that is as old as time itself. This is The Devil's Advocate. Welcome back to the Pro Se Movie Club, where we, um, we just, we got a real humdinger here for you. Um, you know, uh, the great director, great film directors often do, you know, a one for you, uh, you know, a one for you, one for the studio, then one for us. You know, Steven Spielberg's like, I'll make Jurassic Park, but you gotta let me do the three-hour Holocaust movie. And I think that applies to legal podcasts, too. We've done a lot of classics of the legal genre, and now we're doing Devil's Advocate, um, which is uh, a different kind of story, I would say. Um, here to help me out, uh, as always, uh, my co-hosts, Amber McKinney. Hi, Amber. Happy to be here. Love horror movies. So excited to talk about this. And, of course, Bill Donahue. Guys, I, <laughs> I'm scared to talk about this one. Yeah. Um, you know, where to begin? Uh I feel like The Devil's Advocate is not a movie that you watch so much as it kind of happens to you. Oh, I agree with that. Definitely. It kind of washes over you and you kind of like uh, it's documentary, I believe, um, about uh, <laughs> life as a big law, a uh, hotshot big law uh, uh, attorney. Um, it's the kind of movie you kind of need to take a shower after. I'm sure we'll get to some of the more unsavory parts of this pretty soon. Um Directed, uh, came out in 1997, directed by Taylor Hackford. Um, Amber, you alluded to this already. Um, for all of its shortcomings, and I wouldn't go so far as to say that I think this is a very good movie, uh, kind of a pioneering effort in that you just don't see a lot of legal horror movies, and I think this qualifies. I saw this movie described by some um, film critics as the firm meets Rosemary's Baby, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much it. I sure. mean, if you've seen those two movies, you've also seen The Devil's Advocate. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I understand from what you said uh, in the chat before that you watched this movie twice in, what what'd you say, two weeks? Well, I'd love I'll, to hear some initial thoughts. I watched it, and this is good because I did want to bring up that this is a long <laughs> film. It is, yes. <laughs> uh, and I watched it a couple weeks ago, and I sort of... <sighs> Sort of came in and out as I was watching it, and I, uh, yeah. I would hit pause, and there'd be just an unspeakable amount of time left. Yeah, and, <laughs> uh, so I really had to go back and and rewatch it this week to really get all the all the nuggets. But I mean, as we've been watching these, you know, as you said, classics. Uh, yeah, I often take notes. I try to keep up, think about things, interesting, substantive things we're going to say. Mm -hmm. 
That process stopped very quickly in this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's well, there, there lots of scattershot sentence fragments going on. Bill, the way you described coming in and out, it sounds like you were kind of in a, a dream state. This is a very surreal movie in parts. And it made me think about how, you know, people sometimes say the best horror movies are based on nightmares. Yeah. Um, the premise of this movie is, I mean, in essence, it's a joke. What if the devil was an elite lawyer? Right. Um, It's a a lawyer joke. Yeah. Breathed into absurdist reality or whatever. But I actually think it's more than that because it, to me, was like the distillation of the biggest fears of attorneys. Mm -hmm. Like, what if you discover that you're representing not just somebody who's guilty, but somebody who turns out to be the worst kind of pedophile (laughs) or murderer? Yeah. And then... What if your dedication to winning cases tears apart your entire personal life and your family? Mm-hmm. What does that do to your soul? Like, that's kind of the thesis of the movie. Look, mm-hmm. Amber, I I hear all that, but I, I just disagree. I mean, I just think this is the story of <laughs> a big law firm that wants to be, they want to be a leader in client service. And <laughs> they're trying to hire the best lateral talent out there and expand into new practice areas, offer, you know, comprehensive advocacy to their existing clients. I it works out. It nets them some big trial wins that they really were eager to tell people about. Uh, you know, and the movie culminates in a scene where where <laughs> the firm leaders lay out clear firm wide goals. Yes, and they establish a succession plan for firm leadership. Yeah, and, that's true. You know, I don't see I don't see anything wrong with any of it. <laughs> apparently, if you watch this movie two times in close succession, yeah, then you are captured by the devil. I think sure. that's what's happened to Bill. Bill's been devil pilled, uh, <laughs> and he will not be invited back uh, after we're done with this. So. Uh, we will we will soon sort of walk through some of the finer points of the um, uh, legal profession as laid out in this movie. I wanted to focus on a couple of things. Um, this is often where we talk about the performances, and I guess we should probably just start the Pacino conversation here. Um, I'm not breaking any news to say that Al Pacino, literally one of the finest American actors who has ever lived, the consensus at the time when this movie comes out in 97 is that he's in kind of like full-on check cashing mode he's kind of uh probably starting with scent of a woman he just becomes the yelling guy who sure. does weird outbursts he does this in heat of course um this is one of my favorites of this era of his career it is not it is not i want to be really clear about it. i'm talking about this stretch i'm not putting it up against the godfather and dog day afternoon and things like that sure though um i will say it has the reputation of being this like kind of out of control performance though not it it is somewhat subdued until the very end, um, where it just it just uh, like radiates off the frequency um, of things that we can measure with human. I love his uh, <laughs> over the top, hamming it up nature, especially at the end. But yeah. he does it in winks and nods throughout. And yeah. I think one part about this is yes, this is ostensibly a horror movie. But if you do a rewatch of it now, many years after the first time I ever saw it. It's a, it's pretty funny. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to like in this just as yeah. an entertaining movie. The scene where he sticks his finger in the holy water yeah. and the camera <laughs> yeah. zooms in on his face from a distance and he makes like eye contact with the camera oh, and yeah. it starts sizzling. Unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> well, this well is not a movie known for subtlety, no. even in things like the names of characters. I mean, his character is named John Milton. With, yeah. That's a direct nod to um, yeah, I don't know if you guys Paradise know. Lost. So. <laughs> yeah, John Milton was an English intellectual. He wrote a poem about the fall, about the devil being cast out of heaven. Sure. Uh, anyway, um, so, you know, it's, uh, 
it's fun. Yeah, you. It's it, it's not a movie for that is very subtle. It's interesting though the way. I don't know how much of this is like intentionally funny. I think it was pretty like it was kind of just like regarded as trash when it came out as like very trashy subject matter. Now that over time that kind of evolves into camp. Yes. And this has some like pretty serious unintentional comedy or intentional. I don't really know. And it's at, at some point Artisan 10 kind of goes out the window with a story like this. Anyway. Could we take a beat just to talk about Keanu Reeves's accent? That's, yeah, this I is, just this is can't a fine let that time. go unremarked. He plays a Southern attorney who is allegedly from Gainesville, Florida. Yeah, Florida, not a place known for the accents of the deep South. It's like the one spot in the South that is a little more neutral in yeah. how people speak. You get it in the panhandle a little bit, but not, it, not like this. Gainesville's right in the middle. It just shouldn't have an accent that sounds like it's from Mississippi or Alabama or none of those things because it fades in and out. I it's know. a confusing well, choice. It was a weird... It was... Well, okay, so he was coming off of what? Off of Speed he had yes. made a few years earlier? He turned five. down Speed 2 to play this role. I think it's hard for Keanu to turn off the, like... California thing that he had been doing for a decade then. Well, anyone who's yeah, ever seen that's true. Anyone who's ever seen Bram Stoker's Dracula knows how hard this is because he does like a period English uh, thing in that one. And that is even worse than this. This is not this is this is not a good uh, or very evocative accent work, but it's not his worst. So. I would like to just baseline say I'm giving him <laughs> a lot of crap for this accent. I actually really like Keanu Reeves. I find him quite charming. I thought they were great against each other. I thought it was, you know, again, I think we've all said enough caveats that this movie is sort of like campy <laughs> trash, so like that's yeah. always the caveat here, but mm. you know, the two of them screaming at each other, I mean, I'm just seeing the guy from Heat with the guy from Point Break just screaming like, FBI agent at like each other, <laughs> but they're yes. talking about, you know, the end of the world because they're Satan and his son. The fallibility of God and man, things of that nature. Let's talk about Charlize a little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, this was, first of all, this is a big year for her in legal movies. She's in this movie. She's also in the little scene comedy called Trial and Error. Do you guys ever see that movie? Jeff Daniels, Michael mm-hmm. Richards? It was, in fact, little scene by me. Yes. Um, all, yeah, that was directed by the same guy who directed my cousin Vinny, Jonathan Lynn. And um, yeah, this is, um, this is quite a moment for her because she was... You know, largely unknown, and she gets. We'll 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 get into this a little bit later, but I mean, this is a movie that asks a lot of her in terms of the performance, it just because of what happens to the character. It asks her to wear a really terrible wig for half the movie. That's yeah. at the start. <laughs> yeah, it's, and then she it's goes tough. Yes, and then she goes into Aeon Flux uh, with the uh, with with the with the, right. with the Bob. Um, <laughs> but Bill, you brought it up. What are your you got any uh, Charlize takes here? No, I mean she's just very charismatic in the way that um, I think we've uh, you know we talked about with. Um, um, Reese Witherspoon in uh, Legally Blonde, where you know breakout role, where you see people. Well, maybe not the breakout role, but it was it's something she when was you on see the come up later stars and you see them in an early movie and you go, oh, it makes sense that they later became a movie star. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, uh, all in all, I mean, I can't, I can't quite say that I enjoy the experience of watching this movie, but I, but like it, it is ambitious in a way that a lot of things in this genre are not. I mean, before we move entirely away from casting, I did discover one of those things that I really love, which is what would the alternate version of this movie have been? Oh, you got some... And uh, at some point before this was actually made, Joel Schumacher was uh, attached to direct. And that actually made so much sense to me because he had done horror before. He'd done The Lost Boys and he'd done Flatliners. And then he'd also done legal movies. He did a Time to Kill. Time to Kill. So like a this, this is again kind of a good matchup of those skills. Um, Brad Pitt was going to play 
the Kevin character. Okay. I could see that too. <laughs> yeah. One uh, one last yeah. note on on this movie came out the same year as uh Face Off. Ah. And I have very similar vibes when I watch this movie to that movie that it is imagine the pitch meeting when they when they try to sell this movie that yeah. it's it's you know the saying it's a, it's the devil's advocate. <laughs> Imagine if you have an advocate and st- and stay with me here. He's actually the devil. <laughs> well, that pitch meeting happened in a publishing house because this is based on a book, you yeah, guys. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, um, I've not read this novel. I don't know if I will. Also, I found it in the footnotes of a Wikipedia article, so take that with a grain of salt. The uh, author of the book um, also compro- uh, composed a libretto for a staged musical version of this i don't know if this ever got like a a long run but you want to talk about messing with form i would watch that yeah would get a ticket yeah they actually ended up making it It was in the heights there you go (laughs) (laughs) all right um so i I don't know any other big picture takeaways just on the general experience of watching the movie before we dig into the um dig into the particulars here i think let's get to the uh the big legal scenes because this movie is so true to the form of the legal profession and the and the court the court system all right so let's um you know it was was funny as i was pulling this together trying to walk through some of the salient legal scenes it occurred to me that um the legal the like legal procedure scenes are actually some of the least interesting stuff in the movie or at least the most conventional stuff in the movie that's obviously what we focus on here um but uh yeah let's just get to it um so we open with a sort of prof- deeply upsetting sequence that introduces the hero of the story, the hero now, sort of poking holes in a sexual assault allegation by a young girl against her math teacher, I believe. Pedophile cameo by Frank Sabaka Frank- from The Wire. <laughs> Frank Sabaka right. putting in the work here. Um, it's uh, heinous. This gets to the uh, thing I said earlier about needing to take a shower when you watch this movie. Um, this attracts the interest of, uh, the fancy, uh, law firm that is, that sort of drives the action here. And the first time we see our hero, Kevin Lomax in action, he is, um, he's been sort of contracted out, I guess, to serve as a jury expert of a, 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 a voir dire pro. And he's kind of, we first see him in his element here. We, we know that he's a very ruthless litigator and now he's apparently, of Wardir Savant, and he sort of is sparring with uh, you know some of the other top brass at the law firm over who to keep on and keep off the jury. And number six, your favorite, she's damaged goods. She's a Catholic school teacher. Hmm? Believes in human frailty. No, there's something missing from her. She's wrong. She wants on this jury. Somebody hurt her, and she wants revenge. How the hell do you know that? I don't know. Look, either you put a stop to this happy horse shit or I walk. Walk. All right, here's the deal. I lose with your jury, you do the explaining. What what stuck out to you here, Bill, when he's uh, when he's sort of plying his trade? It was good. It um, you know, it <laughs> sounds great. Yeah. Uh 
they they have to lay they have to establish early on that he has this sort of superpower, right? I yeah. mean, that's what they do in all these movies where there's a hotshot lawyer. They have to have some scene what, where what's thing, right? Exactly, and they go and you know, and it makes sense as the movie goes along when you find out that he is the son of Satan. Yes, uh, that he has some actual superpowers to to a certain extent, maybe, but. Um, but no, it's good. It, it sort of, it sort of sets him up and, and you get a feel for, you know, he is really comfortable. It's his first time in New York. It's his first time everything. And he's still so confident. So it, it, it's, it's a good scene to set up the movie. I also like it because so rarely do we get a clear answer in any kind of movie that features a legal plot line about why someone so often wins. So they set up that he never loses in trials. And yes. you're like, how could that be possible? But then they sort of backtrack and they're like, because he picks juries that are always going to go his way and he's magically knows how to read people to the level that he will get them on his side. So I thought that was a sort of a nifty little way to explain how he's such a, a winner. Yeah. And it's like nonverbal stuff, right? It's not even based on like the way they answer the questions. He's like, this guy shines his shoes and this woman has an ax to grind. And I right. like the like diving into the sort of the, the like poker game element of Wardir where he's like. I want, you know, I, I, I was going to say we should get rid of juror number six, but prosecution's going to mess up and actually do that for us. And like we're sort of we're getting into like the 4D chess of how you how you approach this. Stuff. I will say I've covered, uh, you know, I've been in courtrooms plenty of times. I've never seen counsel lightly slap co-counsel in the face <laughs> to uh, conclude yeah. a, 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 scene, a, a moment where they're speaking to each other. Yes. Um, so. That goes really well. He does the old he does the old rope a dope on Marianne when he gets home. Pretend like you lost the case. Then we come to find out, of course, after only thirty eight minutes of deliberation, gets a not guilty verdict, and then he's on the fast track. And this is kind of sad because this is really the last sort of sweet, uh, untainted moment they have together, uh, given what's about to happen to Marianne. And here um, is where uh, that leads us to uh, the next one, where uh, he meets the sort of prestigious named partner in the firm. As you said, uh, Amber, Hall of Fame, unsubtle movie name character, <laughs> John Milton. This is right up there with, uh, I will say, and if you ever seen the movie Angel Heart, Robert De Niro plays a manifestation of the devil, and his name in that movie is Louis Cipher. Louis Cipher. Oh, great. Can't say great. I have seen that film. Oh, yeah. that's the, We're not really going to be able to do that here, but you should uh, if you think this movie is crazy. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Here uh, in this scene with uh, this, the first sort of Pacino Keanu scene, and he gives him the full big law pitch. You know, he shows him around the swanky office. He asks him if you can handle the pressure of doing this kind of work. Um, And this is interesting because on a couple of levels, I think if you're a sought after lawyer, you've likely been pitched in some fashion um, by a by a big fancy law firm like this. But because of the insane uh you know religious uh imagery that this movie traffics in it doubles as this you know eden like uh you know dazzling you know temptation don't touch anything uh sort of uh uh allegory there so it works on a lot of levels i really liked all of that i like how you pointed out that allegory i've been in my fair share of big prestigious law firm offices in dc and new york none are quite like this um it does seem pretty typical as a way to dazzle people that might join your firm to show them like, look at this beautiful view of Manhattan. Look at this um, rooftop we have, stuff like that. But as soon as you get into uh, Al Pacino, the John Milton character's office, it's it's a crazy room. The Bond villain lair. It, it yeah. is a Bond. That's exactly right. So up until that moment, though, I really did feel like, you know, 
this isn't that far off. I mean, there are a lot of swanky law firm offices out there. And it would be if you're from a small town, you know, you're, you're not used oh, to yeah. some of those places. It would be dazzling. I can see how that's very tempting. You haven't seen the infinity pool on the roof of Skadden's office? <laughs> <laughs> Don't mind that. Uh, and, and, and watch that first step. Uh, the other thing I really like in this scene is when um, they they do a little... Uh, back and forth on something that we talk about a lot on Pro Se and that gets written about a lot, which is the uh, the switching sides. We find out that Kevin used to be a prosecutor and he switched to defense. They have a little uh, a little interplay about, you know, one day you're putting them away, next day you're setting them free. The pay's better. Pay's better, uh, though. You were a prosecutor. Out of law school. Five years in the Jacksonville DA's office. 64 straight convictions. <laughs> what a number. <laughs> I like to be in court. I didn't plea out a lot. But what's that like? One day you're putting them away, next day you're setting them free. Takes a little getting used to. Pays better though, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. I also like that there's a beat there where this movie does this weird thing where sometimes when I'm like, this is going to be so unrealistic and crazy, they'll throw in a line where I'm like, oh, that kind of explains what they're doing and one of those lines was um kevin directly asked like why does this firm need a criminal defense attorney yes <laughs> um which is a very logical question this definitely seems like the kind of firm that is you know doing a lot of stuff like it seems like one of those big mega firms that has a bunch of departments but you wouldn't necessarily see criminal defense doing just just cop and trip triple murder beats and all <laughs> right. that stuff you know right and al pacino very smartly says got some high-powered clients and they get in trouble um so it kind of ties i mean it's foreshadowing of course but it also ties up that loose end of like wait why would he work at this firm yes they're trying to offer comprehensive client services guys (laughs) if you murder your wife uh we've got a department for that we're there for you yes um this is probably a good time as any to uh, say that Bill and I, I mean, I don't, this isn't really, this probably won't matter to you, Amber. I think Bill and I should try to keep the Pacino impressions to a minimum. We've been pretty good so far. We're about 20 minutes in. We haven't said a peep. I can't promise that that will hold, but. Uh, I won't have any. I will I will say that now. I can commit to that right here and now, that I will not do any Pacino Alex, impressions throughout th- the recording. I mean, Bill and I need to have a sidebar to decide how many you get. Uh, we'll, we'll give you a number for yeah, the rest of the podcast. They're like challenges in football. Yeah. Um, I think I think you get two. I get two. Yeah. All right. Okay. Pick your, pick your moments. I'm not doing them now. Uh, this is uh, – we can, I think, move on to the next one. I, the, I, I like the structure of this movie because – there is not one central case um, that kind of drives the narrative, like in something like A Few Good Men or My Cousin Vinny. We get a little, we get a little sampler platter of like a lot of unsavory stuff that lawyers like this do. I mean, the defendants in this case are uh, a teacher accused of sexually assaulting a student, uh, a guy who cuts off the head of a live goat. And then uh, a real estate developer uh, accused of triple homicide. So you get a little bit of everything. I just imagined the writer's room being like, okay, what would the devil think is okay? Let's put yeah. them all in. Yeah. And <laughs> goat sacrifice. You just don't see that coming in this movie. But yep, fits right in. Yeah, yeah we can. The iconic line of this movie. <laughs> this case is not about keeping goats, transporting goats, <laughs> or goat licensing. <laughs> He's right. Um, and that's a perfect sort of uh, uh, interlude into uh, the Moyes case. Philippe Moyes, played by 
Delroy Lindo. Uh, great little two-scene action from Delroy Lindo. Um, and I think that, uh, like I say, uh, he was he's caught on tape by, I think it looks like a SWAT team or like an FBI, you know, uh, door knock raid or whatever, it's, or whatever it is. Cutting the head off a goat. Um, Kevin diagnoses it as a public health case that he thinks is a, is a total loser. Doesn't want to take it, to your point, Amber, about only taking the winners. That's how you keep winning. Um, but what this scene shows us, there's a hearing that uh, introduces us to another round of sort of creative lawyering. He likens the goat. Uh, he makes it a he make he makes it a religious uh, expression case. Likens the goat decapitation to other religious practices like kosher butchering, which gets a rise out of the judge. Yeah, I really expected him to actually drop the word Santeria, uh, but he doesn't <laughs> yeah. actually do it in the scene. But he comes really close. He basically is saying that. The and dark I, arts. I appreciated the just from a screenwriting perspective that, again, you would say to yourself when you're watching this, why is a, you know, a top like a white shoe law yeah. firm representing this guy? And then they just throw one line in, which is. Well, he has $25 million in his bank account. We're not sure why. And that's all you need. Yeah. You know, there's money there. That's why they're doing it. I, that's, <laughs> that's all I need. I just need a reason for why he's doing it. And if they're going to pay, we're taking the case. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Kevin uh, Lomax here is doing a lot of uh, he's, he's, you know, finding novel novel arguments to make. However, we should also note keeping the win streak alive. This, I think, is one of the first uh, asterisks on that record, because it certainly helps when your client puts a blood hex on the prosecutor such that he can't actually make an argument before the judge. Alex, a win is a win. (laughs) Now, is that the first moment of supernatural stuff? Because I marked down, it was 58 minutes when when Charlize first sees like a a CGI demon face in the changing room. Yeah. And again, I don't mean to keep harping on the runtime of this movie, but (laughs) maybe we could have tightened up the beginning a little bit, you know, get to sort of the electric stuff at the end. Was this the first moment that you, where you start to, was this before that or after that, that you you really, there's like supernatural stuff actually happening? I'm pretty sure this is the first time that happens, but it's, they, 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 they unfurl it in a, I almost said a subtle way. It's not subtle, but it is sort of, (laughs) it is carefully parceled out to like kind of expand the net of weirdness. It's like, all right, this guy does voodoo, Santeria, like whatever it is. It's like, all right, well, that's a little weird. Oh, wait a minute. It actually works in this world. That's extremely strange. And then, of course, you know, like that, then, then we're, we're, we're on to sort of like demon orgies uh, and, and all and things like that. Um, so the next uh, case, you know, sort of spin the wheel of unsavory. Uh, defendants. We get to the uh, the Alex Cullen triple murder case. Uh, Alex Cullen, a real estate developer, played by the great, the immortal Craig T. Nelson. Coach, does I anyone? Like, yeah, does anyone have Craig T. Nelson takes before well, we go further? I really like that he's against his normal type sure. in this movie. I think that's always fun to see somebody, and that must be why he wanted to be take the role in the first place. It's mm-hmm. he gets to play a real despicable guy. It's it's just a fun role. Yeah, I was gonna say he he could have been a. Uh, a cipher, uh, an analog for Donald Trump, but that's actually not really quite true because, as we know, Donald Trump exists in this universe. One they of the do partners name drop him drops at a party. his name. He's like he was, spo- <laughs> he was supposed to be here at our uh, at our law firm that is run by the devil. Very subtle commentary there, ahead of its time, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, the Cullen case, uh, you know, he he is accused of murdering. I think it's the white his wife, stepson, and his and and the maid. Mm-hmm. Claims his innocence. Uh, he meets with the lawyers uh, to to construct a defense, and then we get to the opening arguments, 
And we get that 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 classic lawyer tactic of not really hiding the ugly stuff about your client. It's basically a reverse riff on Denzel's opening statements in Philadelphia, where he says, look, the thing that you as the jury are feeling about this situation, that's totally reasonable. That's right. You're allowed to feel that way. But it doesn't mean that my client did the thing that they're accused of. Yeah. What do you or think? Or vice about- versa, you know. Anyway. Yeah, no, no, I got you. What what, what, what stood out to you there, Amber, about I, pr- pr- the way he presents it to the jury? I'm going to say something bold here. I actually think when we get to the part of the show where we talk about what the movie gets right and wrong, in some ways, it gets the spirit of of some of these legal concepts and what it's like to be a lawyer exactly right. And this one, I think, is good because the movie ha- does this confusing thing where it's not always clear where it comes down on the idea of you know, factual guilt versus yeah. legal guilt. Yeah. But basically, he's making an argument that's true in, in the courtroom setting that you might – this guy might have actually done it and he might be a scumbag, but the prosecution has to prove that. So – Right. You can think he's a jerk, but until mm. they legally prove step by step that he is guilty, you cannot convict him. I also like that uh, Lomax, when he's making the argument about all the all the unsavory aspects of his client's character that are immaterial to a murder accusation, he personalizes it. He literally says, I don't like Alexander Cullen. <laughs> I don't think he's a nice person. I don't expect you to like him. He's been a terrible husband to all three of his wives. He's been a destructive force in the lives of his stepchildren. He's cheated the city, his partners, his employees. He's paid hundreds and thousands of dollars in penalties and fines over the years. I don't like him. I'm going to tell you some things during the course of this trial that are going to make you like him even less. But this isn't a popularity contest. It's a murder trial. And the single most important provable fact of this proceeding is that Alexander Cullen was somewhere else when these horrible crimes took place. It, it tells a it, 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 it sort of grounds it for the jury. Um, and you make a good point, Amber, about the fact that, like, I think I said that the that the the legal scenes are the least interesting, but what they actually are is the most conventional. It's like, I mean, this sure. is this would not be out of place in like a murder trial if you had like a problematic defendant. One thing that did stand out to me is pretty funny is that he doesn't uh, tell the client that he's going to do this. Obviously, Cullen uh, didn't want to like rely on this narrative. Uh, turns out he's got an alibi. We'll talk about the alibi in a second, but that he was having an affair with his mistress at the time. Uh I just, I just, I think, I think you know you're in, you're in good territory in a legal movie when a client throws his lawyer against the wall, which happens uh, <laughs> soon after he makes the opening <laughs> argument. You're in good territory there. And he says, like, I'm going to bust my ass to make sure that they hate you because that's, that's what's, that's what's important here. Um, then uh, the aforementioned uh, mistress, who is his assistant, you know, that's, that, that, that's probably the most telegraphed thing in the world. As soon as you hear him say that he has an assistant named Melissa, she's going to become uh, an important person here. Uh, Lomax peppers her with the old sort of mock cross-examination, uh, where we see a little bit of the witness coaching that is pretty typical in, in, in trials like this. Once again, another scene that just turns on a lurid, you know, yeah. d- sexually depraved thing that, that this, the, the, the big trial in this legal movie turns on whether or not this guy is circumcised or not and whether or not she can recall that. And, you, yes. it's, you know, so you go from 
the first scene with the pedophile to the, you know, Marianne discovering that there are demons while they're all nude in a changing room. Mm. Every scene in this movie, tri- you know, aggressively tries to to paint a layer of sexual, you know, stuff onto everything else. Uh, yeah, the subject matter aside, uh, the methodology is pretty interesting. You know, you you we hear him coaching her on. You know, she's given answers that are too long-winded. That's something you hear all the time. Uh, uh, Amber, what did you think about the way that he's sort of preparing the witness here? I'm a little conflicted about <laughs> this scene, and not just because it's one of the more sort of graphic depictions in the movie, but the coaching of a witness, there's a fine line, right? But you do prep. You yeah. do witness, like, mock um, interrogations yeah, for cross. this kind of thing. Um I'm confused a little about how Kevin seems like he really knows the rules of the law that like you don't need to know if your client's guilty or innocent. You need to know if the prosecution can prove that they're guilty. Yeah. But he seems really conflicted when he figures out by asking her questions that she doesn't flat out say that she didn't have the affair. There's no admission here. He's not in any sort of ethical jeopardy based on her telling him that she's going to lie in the stand, Mm -hmm. which as an attorney, you would have to prevent that. You have to have candor with the court. He just intuits, because that's his superpower, that she is lying. And to me, that's where this gets a little confusing because the movie wants you to be like, Kevin, you've got to turn her in. Mm -hmm. You've got to not put her on the stand. But that's not what legal ethics would tell you to do. Yeah, Amber, it's almost as if this movie isn't super coherent (laughs) it's almost like that i hear what you're saying but i think this is an interesting part of the movie because the messiness of that question in the real world i mean obviously this is the devil and it's a horror movie and it's salacious and all that but in the real world you do as attorneys maybe sometimes have inklings of like i don't know if this person's on the level but i can't prove that they're not right and how do you navigate that and what are the rules about it i mean you talk to most sort of successful defense attorneys that do criminal defense and they don't ask their clients if they're guilty because they don't want that answer. Yeah. They don't ask a, a witness if they're going to lie. If they can prove that the witness is lying, that's a different thing and, and something you'd have to take to the court. But they don't get themselves in a position like Kevin does here where this weighs on him in quite the way that it does. Um, before we head to the grand finale here, we should just we should nod, I think, to... Well, all this stuff is going on in the courtroom and the and the law office. There's just some wild stuff going on on the periphery of this movie that we can maybe just allude to. I could be wrong. I think this is the I think this movie made history when it came out. I think this is the only movie that that has ever featured a, the managing director of a prestigious law firm killed by demons while jogging through Central Park. Demon homeless sure. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, there's. I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, we're, we'll we'll get into what goes on with Marianne later. Of course, that he was played by uh, Principal Rooney, who is uh, it turned out in in real life was a sex offender. Yeah, Jeffrey Jones. Uh, uh, Quite a, he he fits in well here. There's right. a, there's a there's a there's a meta commentary that uh, that, that, but, we, that we didn't even know about. At the time. Uh, but right, but I mean everything with uh, Charlize as well. That that she has the vision of the baby holding her ripped out ovaries yeah. in a room. It's there are many moments in this movie you're like, what on earth is happening? It's kind of like there's two movies going on, right? The, there's 100%. the legal side where it's Kevin and it's John Milton and sort of they're sparring back and forth all the way up to the end when it gets crazy, which we'll talk about in a second. But then on the separate track, you have, in some ways, a more traditional horror movie. Yeah. You have people getting murdered, seeing demons, seeing visions. Like, that's all the trappings. (laughs) 
Okay, guys, I lo- like I said up top, yeah, no, I love I horror I movies, and this yeah. is very, it, it sort of traffics in those tropes that you expect, that you're going to have some essentially jump scares happen in this mm-hmm, movie, mm-hmm. and some sort of surreal dreams people are having, stuff like that. So it it is the melding of sort of those two worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and what tees us up for the end game here is uh, Kevin's wife, Marianne, Charlize Theron, has committed suicide in a mental institution Horrific scene, by well, the way. Well, we should say, though, he because he, he goes ahead with the witness who lies and gets Craig T. Nelson oh, off yeah, on right. the murder. That's, That's a, a key part. I mean, it's an important you know, detail. He sort of swallows the ethical conundrum and just moves ahead, which is sort of, you know, to the extent this movie does have a coherent plot, that is sort of the, the last moment where he steps over the Rubicon. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, he's dominating in his professional life, clearly. Uh, you know, bending ethics rules or whatever we're saying here. Um, he's coming away with all the W's. The streak is alive. Um, personal life is another story. His wife, like I said, has committed suicide in a mental institution where she was placed after accusing Milton, Al Pacino, of raping her during the time when he was in court with Kevin. Um, this sort of tees up a final showdown between Kevin and, uh, Loma, er, and uh, Milton, which is preceded by... Uh, a favorite trope of mine, the eerily empty New York City sequence. Yeah. If, if you're ever if you're ever watching a movie and that happens. Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky. Look, like, guys, you, I really liked those eerily empty New York City moments <laughs> up until the year 2020. And now yeah, I right. see them in movies and I hate them now. I used oh, to love that right. too. I used to think they were like, oh, this is what movies do when they want to show how serious it's like, gotten. something's up here, And folks. now, anytime I see one, I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to see this ever again. Yeah. So, um... Uh, at this point, this this there's such a weird expo dump going on. We, th- th- wow. There's 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 no sense trying to untangle it. But also, Kevin's mother at this time tells him, "Yes, that's what I was." Th- yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that that uh, Milton is in fact uh, his father, uh, who has been the whose past has been obscured a couple different times sure. uh, throughout the movie. So he goes to confront him, and here's where we really get. Um, this is what the whole movie's been building to. This is what. The middle stage of Al Pacino's career has been building to. It just takes <laughs> such a turn, right? Because the, yeah. the, a bunch of things happen all at once. That there's the there's the reveal that he's the father. The FBI agent oh, yeah. reveals that oh, the yeah, firm totally is manufacturing <laughs> arms deals <laughs> yeah. and is essentially like a bond. Vi- actually, is a bond the villain. Feds are closing, and then in. he's run over by a car and dies. <laughs> yeah, it's just. And then Charlize Theron stabs herself in the neck, and it's it's it. it the movie just. Hits the gas with like twenty five minutes left. Yeah, you can feel it start to vibrate in a way. It's 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 really and, weird. And you and again I, to, to get back to the runtime that I wish they had just gotten to this a little bit faster because yeah, yeah. once you once you click into that you're like this is amazing. This is what I want <laughs> out of this movie. So we get to Milton's. It, you know, Kevin confronts him, holds him at gunpoint. In fact, <laughs> uh, the gun that he got from Cullen. Funny, that's old. That's uh, the old Chekhov's gun thing. Um. And let me see if I have this right. You guys tell me if I'm misreading what's going on here. Sure. So Milton reveals that this entire thing, recruiting Kevin to the firm, is part of a centuries that centuries long ploy to overthrow God or <laughs> demolish God's experiment sure. with humans. Yes. And also that he is the devil. And he has chosen to do it through the vehicle of an elite. American law firm. <laughs> Look, you're laughing, but this makes perfect sense to me as a horror movie watcher and because my favorite part of this showdown climax scene, which is quite long, yeah. 
is actually Kevin saying, why the law? Oh, yeah. Why lawyers? Why the law? And then the devil says. Because the law, my boy, puts us into everything. It's the ultimate backstage pass. It's the new priesthood, baby. Did you know there are more students in law school than there are lawyers walking the earth? We're coming out! Guns blazing! The two of you, all of us, acquittal after acquittal after acquittal until the stench of it reaches so high and far into heaven, it chokes the whole fucking lot of them. That is probably my favorite little speech, you know, soliloquy from Al Pacino in this whole movie because he's not wrong. I mean, (laughs) the law really does touch everything. I mean, I know he's the devil. He's saying it in a really negative way. Acquittal after acquittal after acquittal. But here's the thing. We I think that counts as a Pacino impression, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. Broke the rules. (laughs) We we do talk on Pro Se all the time about how whatever is the top story going on in America, there's going to be lawsuits. There's going to be um, blowback on a policy level that involves lawyers. There's just the law really is involved in everything. It really is a backstage pass, like he says. Uh, I also really yes, I mean that's that's a hundred percent right. I, the, the, if if the movie has a spoken mission statement, uh, you get it there, uh, in, like in no uncertain terms. The practice of law can and will crumble God's grand experiment. There you go. <laughs> um, At the very least, you will get access to anything you want. So your aim could be good or bad. Yeah, but you'll have the access to make it happen. Calls it the new priesthood, which it I does. think is pretty funny. Yeah. Um, the uh, the other thing I like, and this is sort of separate from the from the legal uh, uh, mission Before statement. Before we move away from this, I did want to say one thing, and this is just yeah. because this is my favorite lines in the movie. He says that there's more students in law school than there are lawyers oh, yeah. walking the earth. And I was like, that can't possibly be right. So I actually did fact check that. Um, yeah, how, t- how are we looking? I fact checked it with modern numbers, like current numbers, not okay. 97 numbers. I did it for the year 2000. In the U.S., in the year 2000, there's about 1.3 million lawyers, a little more than that. Mm-hmm. Total JD enrollment that same year was 114,000. So he's off on his math, but the concept <laughs> remains. You have to remember, we he's manipulating reality and time sure, itself. Sure. So, you know, maybe we'll give him some rope well, there. Well, and what – here's what this scene – Still a lot of lawyers. Here's what this scene did, which sometimes annoys me in a movie. They – they took what would have been fine if you had left it a little squishier, yeah. and they tried to literalize it a little too much. They tried to give you too much exposition, yeah. and like, no, I'm literally Satan, yeah. and, I'm, and and there is a plan here. I have so many names. I, I'm going to take over, and I've been planning for number a set number of years. Number one for you, Alex. Yes, yes. It's just too, you know, if they had left it a little bit more, we could get behind it a little bit. If they left it a little bit, I completely disagree. If they left it a little bit more, it wouldn't be the glory of this movie. Yeah. The lack of subtlety is what I like about this movie. Yeah. Well, again, and I keep returning to, uh, you know, the pitch meeting for this movie. And imagine <laughs> imagine being like, okay, so and you, you're still with me, right? This so, is Bill's generic New York guy. This is not a Pacino impression. Yeah, it's a good so I've heard him do this before. In the, in the moment, the climactic <laughs> moment, the hero <laughs> saves the world. Oh, how does he do it? How does he save the world? Well, he shoots himself in the head midway through incest to avoid creating the Antichrist. Uh, yeah, and actually, oh, that, that reminds me. He does do that. Bill's 100% correct on that. Um, uh, I know you had some Connie Nielsen notes that you shared with me before we started the show. Well, it just, 
you know, we all love Connie. What, yeah. What's not to love about her? Unfortunately, she has had to have incest be a central part of two of her biggest roles what between was the this other one? and Gladiator. Oh, right. Commodus is real into all the the, the, the creepy sister stuff. Yes. Uh, her name in this movie is Christabella Andrioli. And do you remember what, uh, what her uh, field is, Amber? Do you remember that one? International Trade House. She's International Lawson. Trade and Customs. I told Bill. Easily the most interesting customs and trade attorney that has ever existed in fiction <laughs> or in real life, for that matter. Um, so uh, one last thing, um, uh, just a little kind of movie-making thing. I like the character design on Pacino in this scene quite a lot. Um, he's still because he, he's still wearing the same clothes, but his hair is kind of wild and his like shirts unbuttoned and the cuffs are rolled up. He now Al Pacino, by the way, now dresses like this in real life, by the way. That's true. Um, the CGI, though, was actually a dumpster fire. OK, wait. it was it felt but real again, like late 90s screen. This gets to the camp stuff of it all. Potato, though. potato, I guess, with us in this movie. But I actually looked up and watched a little video about the making of that. Um, CGI where oh, wow. um, Al Pacino goes from his current that is time age. you will never get back. Yeah, really. I feel great about my life choices, guys. <laughs> Al Pacino goes back in from his current age um, to his, I guess, truer form. The and fallen angel. Sort of, yeah, so it takes him through what looks like a younger Pacino and then to <laughs> Keanu Reeves. A yeah. couple things I love about it. It's a real flash and you miss it scene, but they spend a lot of money on it. And um, you do see a lot of physical similarities between a young Pacino and Keanu Reeves. So I like that, but they actually went back to um, the uh, artists and makeup effects people that worked on the Godfather and got an old like uh, Mm. face of Pacino and used that to digitally build that in. That's good stuff. So that's a pretty great little detail. So you might not love that as nineties CGI stuff, but I think it's, there's a lot of attention to detail. there. Yeah. Uh, take us take us home for uh, for the landing on on how this plot resolves. Yeah, so as you say, uh, as you astutely pointed out, uh, Kevin uh, kills himself uh, mid coitus or or just about to have coitus with his. Uh, with, Gino's holding her hand with Connie it's, Nielsen. It's, it's, it's really just uh, it's uh, it's very Old Testament stuff. Um, and uh, of course, we are now zapped back to the opening sequence of the movie. Kevin is sort of taking a beat after um, the little girl has uh, testified against her teacher. Um, And he's sort of, I guess, given a... I kind of have trouble tracking exactly what's going on here, but he's given a second bite at the apple here instead of mounting a forceful defense of uh, the uh, pedophile teacher, Frank Sabatka. Um, he does the noble thing, stands up instead of, instead of cross-examining the girl and poking holes in her story. Um, he removes himself from the case, apparently risking professional sanction, uh, risking disbarment as a reporter yells at him, risking disbarment. Uh, he's friends with the reporter, by the way, we we can, we can get to that in a second. Um, and then he makes, as he makes his way uh, out of the courtroom, uh, we get one last little twist of the knife where uh, the the personage of this journalist is uh, revealed to be Milton again. And then, of course, we get the iconic vanity. Definitely my favorite sin. <laughs> uh, the movie that ends with a Rolling Stones song, and I'm not sure why it's painted black and not sympathy for the devil. <laughs> Just a note. Uh, anyone, any other thoughts there? Well, a few things. One, while I love that final line... You'd think he'd go with one of the seven deadly sins. Vanity is not on that list. Is that right? That's, That's right. Yeah. I, I did not fact check that. 
it is not on the list of seven deadly sins. I huh. mean, you could, I guess, make it pride. Pride, pride I think, is what God. they're going for there. But you'd think he would have said pride. the word pride. Yeah. Um, it just would have been a stickler cleaner. for details, you'd think. <laughs> yeah. Um, the devil is in the details, as, I, as they often say. <laughs> I, I think this this ending to the movie also sort of moves us into the bucket of like, what do they get right or wrong about the legal system? Yeah, we can we can probably. Just I kind of want to do it all together. Yeah, because before I praised the idea that Kevin seems to know the difference between factual guilt and legal guilt, and what your role is as, as a defense attorney, but the supposed win for him is to go back and actually ignore his duty to zealously <laughs> represent his client yeah. in the middle of a trial based on nothing more than a gut feeling that the guy is guilty, no actual facts that he would need to disclose to the court. Well, it's based on a lot more than that. He's been put through a uh, <laughs> sure, psychotropic uh, uh, experience <laughs> yeah. engineered by the devil. I don't I know just, if you... Yeah. I, as much as I have fun watching this movie, I know. <laughs> yeah. what I don't like about it is that it's, it's an impugnment of the way our system is structured, but it's structured that way for a reason. It's not That's about an understatement. <laughs> it's not about evil lawyers protecting guilty people. The way the system's set up to work is that a vigorous defense is designed but, to either protect the innocent or protect ensure that it's like judges and juries that make these decisions, not the cops and the lawyers. Mm-hmm. So having the ultimate authority to decide who's guilty of a crime and therefore withdraw in the middle of the trial and yeah, make a big yeah. scene, it's it's posited as if a as if that's a positive choice by Kevin, and it's actually not. But that was such a trope in in nineties and two thousands legal and police dramas that there was always this this sentiment that you know civil liberties are getting in the way. If we only we could you know it's yeah. these pesky lawyers, these pesky <laughs> activists, and sure. they're keeping us from you know getting the super predators out there. And yes, I think we've obviously gotten away from that in the last ten years mm-hmm. as as you know uh, sentiments on on criminal justice have have changed a lot. But yeah. that was a real vibe at that time. That that's right. The lawyer you know these things it's it's annoying that the lawyers are just in the way and defending these bad guys this movie uh effectively breaks the uh fact checking segment that we do here <laughs> whatever we're calling it um just because it it takes it is absurdist by nature so i don't have much here um uh, my idea to do this show was inspired by a, a, a tweet I saw a couple weeks ago that said the most unrealistic thing about the devil's advocate is that all the senior partners of a fancy law firm live in the same apartment building. That's like <laughs> completely crazy to me. Uh, I mentioned already that the... the uh, but did you see those apartments? <laughs> I might sell myself my soul to the devil Sick to apartments. get one of those too. Like- no doubt. Um, I mentioned already that the, uh, the uh, a, uh, journalist covering the trial is socially drinking with the... Uh, uh, prosecu- with the uh, defense attorney after. You don't see that a whole lot. Um, Speak for yourself. Sim- well, okay. <laughs> Similarly to that, in the first version of the trial that opens the movie, Kevin realizes the guilt of, of his client, and he yells at him in the middle of a courtroom out in a hallway. Like, oh, yeah. People are walking yeah. by. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. like everyone can see it. There's no discretion there at all. That would never happen. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the liberties they take are pretty evident, and it's kind of even a waste of time to spend a lot of time talking about it. But a lot of the legal procedure and stuff, as I said already, is fairly straightforward. And I thought you you, you said you had some high marks in that one, Amber. I did. Right? I mean, more the broad picture of stuff they got right. And we've yeah. touched on a few of these, but I just want to kind of give my list of what they were correct about. I think one of the biggest ones is that you don't see a lot of jury consultants in movies. Yes, that's so true. So they're pretty accurate about how that's a real thing. It's important for really big cases. If it was a really wealthy firm, they would hire jury consultants. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. pretty real. Um, 
I think, generally speaking, they do a pretty good job of laying out all the various ethical dilemmas. I know that seems silly to say in a movie about the devil. Yes. Yeah, there's ethics in here. No no joke. Um, but they do them in a way that's a little more nuanced than you've seen in other legal movies. Yeah. I mean, it's what we've mm-hmm. talked about before, about what is the role of a defense attorney? How much does a client have to tell you or a witness have to tell you before you're obligated to tell the court? Where's that line? Mm-hmm. It's not where common people might put it because mm-hmm. legal ethics is pretty complicated about where you you know stop and have to do something different. So I think that's all pretty interesting that a movie this campy can have some things that are really spot on. Amber thinks that the movie about the devil running a law firm is really tight on the ethics, and that's and that's good. One um, more thing. One more thing they got right. <laughs> I think the devil's is, complicated. Yes, I was just I saying the uh, the work life balance of a uh, oh yeah. at a, uh, a top law firm. Oh, <laughs> um, now I don't know if your I don't know if your wife is gonna you know have visions of the devil. But uh, <laughs> but uh, your your partner may not be happy with you. That's the hours true. you're working. Uh, I also know, Bill. Uh, you had said that this movie inspired some real life litigation. You want to yeah. tell us a little bit about that? There was a real life copyright lawsuit that came out of the the movie. Um, it was like two months after the movie came out in 1997. Warner Brothers was hit with a lawsuit that claimed that. Um, uh, there was a sculpture in Milton's house uh, mm-hmm. that was a copy, but a distorted one of one that was featured in the uh, National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Um, the case was filed by both the cathedral and uh, a, the sculptor who made it. And mm-hmm. um, uh, the complaint said that the movie featured a, quote, grotesque distortion and unauthorized use of a profound and beautiful religious sculpture. Mm. Really singing his own praises there. Yeah, wow. Uh, uh, <laughs> So Six sculpture, me. <laughs> Warner Brothers uh, pretty quickly settled. Um, okay. They were sort of forced to do so because a judge ruled uh, on – they made a fair use argument fairly quickly, and the judge ruled that they were probably not going to win that argument and mm. granted uh, a preliminary injunction on the grounds that the movie had likely violated the copyrights oh. here. So the agreement allowed for the, the theatrical release to continue to the extent that it was still out in movies and for even the rentals to go forward as planned. But it forced Warners to edit out the sculpture from subsequent copy, subsequent releases of the movie. So the movies that we all watched on <laughs> uh, presumably Netflix, these I think are the we compromised are, uh, uh, HBO Max, yeah, uh, yeah. definitely did not have this sculpture in it. Okay. Um, very interesting stuff. Um, this is a movie that is explicit in its worldview in its thesis statements. But I think it would be wise for us to kind of put a bow on this. Uh, Amber, we'll start with you. What do you what do you think this movie's sort of worldview of the law is? Or what 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 does it speak to in sort of high levels here? For me, it's ego is bad. Yeah. That's sort of the take <laughs> on what's going on with lawyers and people in general. But I think the worldview is don't prioritize never losing a case above everything else in your life, mm-hmm. including your wife, your personal morals, your yeah. legal ethics, your mom. Um, really, at every turn, Kevin chooses his own wins yes. above everything else. Um, the line I like about this, there's a point where Charlize Theron's character is already um, in a lot of distress. She's being taken to a mental facility. And John Milton asks Kevin if he wants to yes. drop off the murder trial he's working on and go tend to his wife because free will is very important in this movie. Yes. <laughs> um, and Kevin says, you know what scares me, John? I leave the case. She gets better. And then I hate her for it. Yeah. It's your wife, man. She's sick. She needs you. She's got to come first. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean the possibility of leaving this case has never even entered your mind? 
You know what scares me? I quit the case. She gets better. And I hate her for it. I don't want to resent her, John. I've got a winner here. I've got to nail this fucker down. Do it fast and put it behind me. Just get it done. Then, then, put all my energy into her. Wow, that's tough, Kevin. Yeah. Tough choice there. Definitely. Uh, Bill, what about you? I don't have much substantive on this one. I had a great time. Uh, I don't know. I mean, much like uh, Liar Liar, which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, the entire premise of this movie <laughs> is that lawyers are scumbags. Yeah. That lo- lawyers lie for a living. Um, I mean, obviously taken many, many steps further than 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 that. But um, I think it was very of a time in the mid-90s. You know, we had had OJ. We had had that uh, McDonald's personal injury case. I think um, there was this sentiment that that, the legal industry was just there to screw over regular people and mm-hmm. they were lying and everything else. You know, Peter Pan in Hook is a lawyer when he grows up. Oh my God. Kill like, the could, lawyer. Can you imagine a worse thing for this <laughs> like iconic child to grow up into? Yes, yes. In Jurassic Park, the worst guy there is a lawyer and he literally gets eaten as a laugh line. On um, a toilet. <laughs> so... I don't know. I'm I'm glad we've moved on from that. I don't feel like that's quite the the vibe that lawyers get in movies anymore. Um, I I don't know. I had a blast watching this. Pacino alone is worth the price of admission. Yeah. Uh, I think this is the kind of movie that you you know get some beers, get some friends, and watch it. Make it into a drinking game. It's a silly, silly, fun movie to uh, to watch and enjoy. I think that's well said. And you uh, you you hit on um, one of the big takeaways for me this time. I've seen this movie. I don't know, maybe six or seven times it was a big it was it was in the it was it made the rounds on cable a lot um for a time there heavily edited of course um but when what stuck out to me this time you mentioned the how it uh, tackles the uh uh, tackles the work-life balance and the things that happens to charlie's theron is like it that really that really struck out to me this time because of that is like the human cost of this very silly movie you know she it starts off like very simply like she can't keep up with the joneses of like having their apartment look right and she's like feeling literally alienated Mm -hmm. now this movie takes this to absurd ends where you know the spouses of high-powered lawyers are often left adrift uh, and screwed over here, they literalize it by you know having her raped by the head of the firm, who is the devil. Um, but uh, you know, if you wanna if you wanna read it as a treatise on anything, um, a stinging indictment of uh, corporate uh, law culture, I would say. Um, did we miss anything? I mean, so many things are weird well, in this you- movie. <laughs> we probably missed a lot, but I feel like we did a good job explaining its worldview on the law. All right, Steve, hit the stones for us. Vanity. Definitely my favorite sin. Thanks for joining us this week on the Pro Se Movie Club. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, for editing today's show, as well as our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Music for the show comes from Ashley Shadow. The Movie Club will return next week to discuss the dark underbelly of products liability litigation and big law fixers when we break down Michael Clayton. See you next week.